I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. Well, this next guest is someone that I have been kind of pursuing as a guest for a few months since I first saw her speak at an event a few months back. So I'll just go ahead and dive in with the introduction. Pilar Garrido is a political scientist and economist with vast experience leading economic development strategies for a green and inclusive economy, as well as designing innovative financial instruments for critical public investment projects and value chains for climate adaptation. So we'll talk about what exactly that means to those of you who don't speak fluent public sector and economist, but she's a specialist in the formulation, monitoring, execution, and evaluation of sustainable development policy. And uh, I'm excited to talk about that because more specifically, sustainable development policy in Costa Rica, where she has been a government minister uh, and is from, but she's used to working in the public sector and working with public management to get sustainable results, which is not my typical guest. So I'm very excited about this as someone who spent much of my early career working in policy and public affairs. So Pilar's skills include the ability to negotiate and build consensus in situations of high complexity, as well as having a solid record leading high performance teams. So these are skills that are much needed in a world that's in need of massive systemic shifts. In public office, she has served as chief of staff, deputy minister, minister of planning and policy, technical secretary of the sustainable development goals in Costa Rica, and as Costa Rica's coordinator of the economic cabinet. So some very high level positions. And I look at Pilar on screen right now and I think, how are you old enough to have done all of that? So I'm not going to, I'm not going to go into that because I don't want to make it sound like I'm saying that because she's a woman, but like, I, you must have a painting in your attic that just look super old because Pilar, you, you don't look old enough <laughs> to accomplish so much. So we won't even get into that. You know, then we'll never ask you your age, but good, good, good job on uh, staying fresh when a lot of politicians I know end up looking very, very tired and age quickly because it is a stressful position to be in. But I came across Pilar because of her role in steering Costa Rica's ambition to be one of the five countries piloting the inner development goals to support them in meeting the sustainable development goals. And for those of you who aren't familiar, first of all, the sustainable development goals were launched by the United Nations in 2015. And it's, they're called, we'll call them the SDGs from here on out. And they're 17 goals. And their aim is to end poverty, protect the planet, and ensure that by 2030, all people enjoy peace and prosperity. And they're integrated. So everything's built on top of each other or sideways. And, and it basically recognizes that we live in connected systems where you can't solve childhood poverty or infant mortality without looking at women's economic empowerment and climate change and all of these things that impact each other. But what happened was a lot of countries and very smart people and academics and others realized that progress toward the sustainable development goals wasn't going as quickly as it could, or it wasn't as deeply embedded as it could be. So they came together to set up an organization and a set of principles called the inner development goals, because this emerged as a missing piece. Basically, their, their vision is 
that what needs to happen on the SDGs needs to happen because of internal change um, on being rather than doing first and on building capacity to build these deep changes that are very systemic. So that was where I came across Bilar. She spoke at an event in, I believe it was May already of 2022. And I saw her on the screen because I came together with lots of others here in Barcelona to watch this event in Stockholm. And we then set up the Barcelona Inner Development Goals Hub. So there are like two dozen of us in Barcelona and it's, it just made so much sense to me. So it feels like I've found my people. But Pilar is currently working on capacity building for public administrations, transformational leadership and climate resilient development with an emphasis on adaptation, which if you don't know what that is, maybe we'll get into what adaptation for climate change is. But Pilar, I'm really looking forward to having a chat and hearing what's happened since May, because obviously you had an election in Costa Rica and things have changed a lot for you personally, but welcome to the Discomfort Practice. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm really excited to be here. Well, let's dive straight into that first question. So what is an uncomfortable moment that shaped who you are and what you do in the world? I believe when I was, um, when I was asked to become part of, a, of the, a politician, when I was asked to become a deputy minister, and then afterwards when I was asked to become a minister, that was very uncomfortable because uh, what feels comfortable is just working with people at a more technical level or working with communities. And uh, running um, a minister and uh, becoming uh, an economic coordinator, that was another very uncomfortable moment, particularly because when I was asked that, uh, just like two months later, the pandemic came. <laughs> and I was like, hey, you said this was just about tracking and monitoring progress on key indicators, not about uh, bringing GDP <laughs> back again and, and building up on jobs. So those moments when I was uh, faced to the decision whether I should become and, and go in, into the front line uh, where all the fire happens, then those were very uncomfortable. But then again, I was glad I said yes. Wow. I just put two and two together with the timeline of, yeah, becoming a, an economic minister for a country that relies heavily on tourism for its economy, just when everything's shutting down. What did you do? <laughs> How did you keep your country's economy ticking along or, or just survive a pandemic that you didn't know how long it was going to last while having this responsibility of working in government to try not to have your economy crash? What, what did you do personally? How did you deal with that? Uh, personally, it was at moments very uh, heartbreaking. And uh, I was, uh, I also, when, when, when jobs were destroyed, like every day we got the figures. I used to cry for the first days because I believe that was my responsibility. But then I turned all of that into and made the decision to become proactive. And so we, come, we worked with a plan and then we decided to, uh, to protect people. And then we had all the, put into place all these instruments to protect them and then give them cash transfers and um, find other ways in which we can actually help and sustain our, our productive and social tissue meanwhile. Uh, but there was very, very, very complex moments because um, that tension between, as you mentioned, a country that relies so much on tourism, and then we were shut down our, our borders and all in order to protect health. But at the same time, you had to protect employment. And in the most vulnerable areas, like coastal areas, uh, they mainly rely on tourism. And then the value chain, it's everyone in a community works on that. So they didn't have enough of an income. So we had to protect them and find uh, 
uh, places where we could have um, uh, non-deficitary measures to give them actually support. Uh, we were at the same time dealing with um, fiscal reform. Uh, we just had passed the fiscal reform in December, and we hadn't really seen the, the fruit of that fiscal reform. And then, <laughs> and then uh, the pandemic came, so we have our, we had a very fragile situation. So we couldn't launch uh, like very massive packages of support, like Germany or other countries that were or France. So we had to. That was very tricky, very very tense months. But then again, you know what I found? Like um, we found in our team, we found uh, peace and we found love. Like everything we were doing, we were putting just the public sector at the service of people, and we were just acting on love and. It might sound uh, hippie or corny, but that's what happened. Like uh, that is what we decided to do, and just uh, take away all the fear and all the. Um, and it's there was no time to to become like uh, to 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 fall down and just uh, take from that um, momentum and take from that energy in order to to help people and just uh, based on love move on. And it worked. And now we have a good uh, fiscal situation, and we are growing steady. And then we regained uh, jobs, and so. That was fulfilling too. Wow. I don't think I've ever heard an economist say we started from love. <laughs> How different would the world be if economists said we just are going to start from love and at ser <laughs> in service to people, to humans? Because I think that's, that obviously comes through. You, you have a personal warmth, but then also hearing about what you did to help genuinely help people in your country to survive this really difficult time when had no income. And I'm sure a lot of people listening to this can relate. I had no income. All of my work stopped during the pandemic, but I got help from governments. And thank goodness, because something really felt like it shifted with a lot of governments during the pandemic where they were more focused on people. And I suppose being at that high level as a minister, it would be easy, I don't know, perhaps not, to get swept up in the politics of something of, you know, you versus the health minister or whatever, but it sounds like it was a very coordinated attempt probably. And actually everyone in the government kind of had to focus on this one thing and it really made them focused on people again, maybe. Yes, that was it. And it was also about, of course, they wanted uh, from some sectors, they wanted us to fight like with the minister of health because they were saying, hey, economics has to be first and then, and then, and then health. But in the end, we were like very close. And then he was understanding, I was understanding. His family was also had lost his own, their job and their source of income. So we were just um, thinking about what's best. And when it comes to human rights, like if you truly believe this, then there is not such thing as one thing is on top of the other. Economic rights uh, are not on top of health. So we were just trying to balance and do our best. Sometimes perhaps we didn't make it right, of course. Perhaps we did a lot of mistakes. But then in the end, we protected people. And then in the end, we were just a struggle through it and we were successful. And we, not many lives were lost. And then we managed to regain work and, and our productive tissue was not damaged uh, so much. So, wow. So did right. <laughs> yeah. And also, I mean, nobody listening to this can avoid having had a personal impact from this pandemic. And, you know, there was such a long time and still were emerging into a little bit more hindsight on things. But, you know, just realizing who, who knows what they're doing in this. Nobody really knew what they were doing because it was so unprecedented. So to have to be somebody who 
maintained, you know, like came in as an expert in what you do and then had to operate in this completely unforeseen and unknown context. How did you do it? Like, did you have a practice that kept you grounded or, you know, how did you switch from crying every day because of the situation and seeing how people were suffering to this place of sort of love and empowerment and action? I mean, some, they say a lot of these answers that come from inside and, and then in with me, that's what it happens. I just, uh, I needed to let it out and just uh, become aware of what I was, uh, what I was dealing with, with the pain that, and the responsibility that I had. And, but at the same time said, okay, now you have the chance and the power. And you said yes to this because you have to do something to change it. And then you're not alone. You have a a wonderful uh, president, which I, I still admire a lot. And then I had a wonderful team and all the cabinet of ministers. So I said, we can do this. We can make it work. And, and solutions don't only have to come from ourselves. We can open ourselves and then listen to what the needs are and then try to figure out some solution and relate differently based on, on, on what we need to do, which is uh, manage to everyone uh, to, to be safe and then just to continue going uh, further. I think it was a moment um, of finding for others and for ourselves too, to find of finding ourselves in others. You know, like uh, politics, it's us. It's not about what I'm, you know, what I'm doing or it's not about what you're receiving. It's what we can do together. It's that common space. And when you're uh, forced uh, and faced into this situation, unprecedented situation, then the best arrives on people. I know that the worst too, but then from ourselves, it was just focusing on the best comes. And it did. We were creative. We were just working a lot. And then uh, people were very, very angry. I mean, that, I, that's one of the reasons why uh, the party of the president didn't get elected right now again. And it didn't matter. I mean, it really doesn't matter <laughs> because uh, what matters is that you know, we made the right decisions at a tough moment. That it was not about pleasing sectors. It was about protecting people about what's best for our nation. And so... That's not very popular at times. Uh, in the end, it's right. So the, the, the peace that you feel that you're doing the right thing, that's also good. Wow. And as a politician, it's almost certain f- getting fired from your job when you, when you do have either powerful lobbies against you or you have done something controversial. It was kind of a no-win situation for anyone in government anywhere in the world because every, you know, nobody was going to be completely happy with how you did the job. So. Focusing on people and then knowing that you might lose an election as a result, I think it's a pretty brave decision. Because I'm interested in knowing how you got into politics. Did you get invited in? Did you choose? Like, how did that happen? How did you end up being there? Uh, I decided, like, there was, um, I, well, I, I became a political scientist because I, in the beginning, that was my first career choice because I felt, um, what can I do that actually helps uh, people thrive in the society? What can I do? to make uh, the most impact. And I said, okay, uh, I'm going to become a political scientist. <laughs> and I decided that sitting on a park. And then I had like two hours just before I had to, uh, to just go into university and choose. And I was with my best friend. And then I said, this is what I'm going to become. And then she said, okay. <laughs> and then I did. <laughs> and it was fascinating. It was fascinating. Um, and um Something else I found, like thinking about policy on a, as an instrument and how you can actually uh, transform societies, how you can actually make societies evolve and how to make people just live more meaningful, more uh, beautiful lives, right? 
and how to be happy. Just because uh, sometimes we just tend to forget that's also an objective in life. How to to do something and and feel yourself uh, like this. And then um, at uh, years went by. I was I became a I was working for United Nations as a consultant, and then I was doing all this uh, like a grassroots work, which was very very important for me with organizations in sustainable development uh, always. And then um, what I did was just uh, become an advisor. I was asked to become an advisor, and so I did. And then, um, and then they said, you're doing a pretty amazing job as an advisor, and then we like how you do it. And then I was forced for that very uncomfortable question as becoming <laughs> a politician. And I said, okay, I'm going to do this. Because um, when women are, f- are faced with this question, then sometimes we, we just think, are we, um, do we have the right capacities? Are we prepared enough? But when yeah. you sometimes offer it to a man, they would just say, yes, I'll take it, right? Yeah. They, would yeah. just, uh, they don't doubt themselves that much. And so I had this conversation with, um, with my partner and he, dis- and he said, you should do it. I mean, why are you questioning yourself? Just, just go. And I said, okay. And I was always the youngest, the youngest one in Covenant. I was also the youngest and everything, as you mentioned. <laughs> and that was also harsh because uh, sometimes in societies, um, particularly in Latin American societies, women in positions of power that are traditionally associated with men uh, like economics for instance or like um, uh, planning or just uh, directing sustainable development in a country those are um, complex for women and and it was i was uh, i was i was looked with more than <laughs> more eyes than ever right and um, they were just very doubtful and they were doubting me and and it was just like starting every minute um and every me- meeting i'm sorry losing two to zero and it was just the, the <laughs> it was always like this. And then, of course, I ended up winning the every meeting with four to two or whatever, but uh, or four to zero. <laughs> but uh, but it was always like that. It felt I had to just uh, prove myself, convince them, and then make the results work. So it was like a lot of work in, put into place. But then I earned um, respect, uh, as in uh, my voice and uh, my vision, and it's just a different way of being a leader because I. Uh, you know, this is my voice. And people said, you should speak like this a little bit more, like uh, with a different, a different way or just act in a certain way. But, uh, but that, that was not me. And I wasn't going to make any concessions of my essence just to please an archetype of, uh, of leadership, of who a leader uh, is. And then, um, so those were complex moments. But then I, um, I stayed um, just loyal to who I am and to my vision. And uh, I think this comes from my great-grandparents. I mean, they were just very uh, down-to-earth, grounded people. Mm-hmm. And, 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 I, and I saw their example. And, and this, is, this is who I am. <laughs> oh, I love that. It is very down-to-earth. Because I teach leadership to undergraduates, most wow. of whom are women. Um, and I'm definitely going to tell them to listen to this and hear that about being in your own voice and not taking on sort of the the caricature or the persona that you're supposed to have in a certain role or how you're meant to be a leader, which is traditionally, you know, our old models of leadership are very masculine. They're very based on a certain type of leader in the West, at least, and, and in Latin America, whereas, you know, I have, I have more Asian students on occasion and it's a little different there. But just to hear you say that about being young and being yourself and having to work three or four times as hard just to be taken seriously so you could then do the job. Whereas, because I think there's a statistic, isn't there, where women traditionally, they feel they have to be at least 80% qualified to apply for something or go for something. Whereas 
um, men, usually if they think they're 20% qualified, will apply. So we, we edit ourselves out of the process so often because we're like, well, I'm not perfect. I'm not an expert, but amen. And also I did my first degree was in history and political science because I always wanted to grow up and be a lobbyist for social and environmental issues. So high five there, sister, because yeah, it's a way to change the world at a really systemic level. And it's, it's also just, I hope people listening to this are thinking, oh, it's good to know there are politicians out there who actually think like this, who truly do put people first and remember that policy and economics and government are actually in service to human beings. You know, you're in service to creating a society and a, a, an environment in which everything and everyone can thrive. So I knew this was going to be a good chat, Pilar. Because <laughs> Costa Rica is a country that has inspired me for a while because obviously I work in social and environmental issues and you are a model of a proud story of success in reforestation, for example. So can we tell, can we tell people that story about like how Costa Rica has become a leader and sort of one of those examples of, oh, you can pull it back. We're not all just heading off a cliff together into climate change and, and deforestation. It actually, you guys have actually managed to reverse deforestation and you have this beautiful concept called Pura Vida. So I just opened the door to you. Tell us the story of Costa Rica. Well, our, our, um, our country is like very small, uh, but it is also, it is 10 times bigger in the ocean than inland. And that is something recent uh, also that we have found out because uh, our map just changed some years ago because we didn't have all the right information. And so this also changes uh, and will shape who we are in the, in, over, the, over the years. Um, we are a very small country, but uh, it's only about uh, 6 million people. Uh, but at the same time, we are very, very, um, very, very ambitious in terms of, of what we want to accomplish. And um, we just started. Um, like small in terms of uh, what do we need to put into place and just making everyone have access to education and access to health. And also in 1949, even before the Brundtland report and all of these conversations about sustainable development, our constitution reflected that we should have uh, uh, social rights and economic rights and also to become and to make them happen in an environment where we can actually have uh, the protection of, of natural resources and make it all sustainable. So. Even drawn from there, there was a vision of our leaders back then uh, that then that we should that we should have that uh, sustainable development before all the conversations on this, and uh, that vision got reflected um, in the way we put the right policy into place. So of course, uh, we were just having this um, moment where we were just producing wealth at uh, the same way everybody was doing it, but then. We stopped for a minute and decided that we needed to protect our natural resources and start working on, on reforestation and start working on planting trees again. And now we are an example. And then we put into place also policy where we have um, uh, ecosystem payments and then that helped us too. And then we're giving those to, to women in particular because uh, they do such a wonderful uh, work just being the guardians of the forest. Mm, so this is literally just adding, giving value to the forest so that people get their income from it and they are incentivized and motivated to protect it and build it. And I think this is one of the most beautiful things because it's using money and economics and the current system under which we operate to, to do something really environmentally positive. And it's good for everybody, right? Yes, that's it. That's the idea is how to, 
to uh, to just uh, come up with those balances and then having this idea that it should all everyone should I should make the most of it and how to and find value in protection and of natural resources. So this is something we have done. And then we managed to pull it back. Like we see our maps and then we're just, there are some more and more and more trees. We just reverted before station and now animals are coming back. Like we've seen this last year is a lot of more tigers and more eagles and just the beautiful animals everywhere. So uh, this is also a sign that we are uh, in good health when it comes to our natural resources and our national parks. And then the other thing, speaking about um, the ocean and the sea and all, um, we just protected. We had an initiative to protect 30% more of our, of, our, um, uh, of our sea resources, of our marine resources. And so now we just uh, made it broader, the, protective, the protection area, because uh, that's our wealth. But at the same time, we just have to recognize that that traps CO2, and then it's also source of income. And then uh, the, the species that are there are just unique in the whole world. So we needed to protect them too. So protect the ecosystem and then do it in a, in a, in a way we can actually have it. And now we're, we're thinking about putting into place the same that we had for the forest, the payment, ecosystem payment, but just to have marine ecosystem payment. Because uh, people in coastal areas are very vulnerable. And then they might be... Uh, linked towards uh, non-sustainable practices when it comes to fisheries or even to, um, to drugs, right? Because uh, that is something that is always there, being a country just like in the middle of it all, like in Central America, right? So, so that is also for vulnerable communities, how to make them like, more resilient, um, climatically-wise, but also socially-wise, and how to um, bring like, wealth from other places. So this is also what we're doing. It's very sane policy because it's based on the recognition that most people don't choose to get into, for example, the drug trade or fish unsustainably because they want to. They do it just because they're trying to survive and have an, a decent life. So you recognize that and then and, and pay them to do something that's good for everybody rather than just saying, you have to do it. We don't care how you feed your family. But yeah, I think that's, that's a beautiful approach. Yes. And uh, also... That, that is it. That is what we have been working on and just becoming a leader in climate change. I mean, it, it came natural, but at the same time, it, it requires, and we had our decarbonization plan, and then we have our adaptation plan and how to deal with, um, with other things and uh, uh, like how we deal with resources and all. So that is, that is something uh, key for us. And um, we're trying to do uh, as best as we can. <laughs> Well, it's, it's interesting as well, now that you're not in government anymore as well, because it kind of, it's a great question that I haven't gotten to ask a guest yet, because it's, it's nice to get to talk to somebody who's not in government, because you can probably speak more freely, because you're not representing your government. But how do you have, how do you personally have a vision to have long-term impact when, you know, I don't know if you do want to go back into government again, or go back into politics again, but you know, and when you might you might be out of your job at any moment. How do you manage to have long-term impact in policy? Because I'm curious about that, because I know that you have a vision for that. That's obviously something that drives you. So yeah, how do you grapple with that personal long-term impact when you never know when you're going to lose an election? Well, that's actually a good thing, because you know that you have an, an expiration date. And so when you're, you have to make the most out of the time that you have and try to build results uh, in that, during that time. 
And also it's a good thing for you personally, because um, I don't think uh, a human being can actually survive being uh, in, in politics for a m much longer. I mean, like, I'm not, not someone who has my spirit, at least, because uh, uh, I need to just uh, change and do other things and feel like I'm moving and progressing and evolving. Um, so if you stay too long in a place, like uh, for me in politics, then that wasn't going to be healthy either. And so I was in politics for eight years and uh, as a minister for four, but it felt because of everything that happened, it was much longer, right? Like, like weeks would be like years, actually, <laughs> because it was uh, so tremendous. It was a tremendous commotion, like uh, in, in every day it was something new. And um, we started our government uh, with the need to how to bring uh, health into our public finances. We were just at the verge of, of uh, selective default with not being able to pay anything. And we're just like, like uh, becoming broke as a country. And this is how we started. And then uh, we, we managed to work that out. And then we passed the fiscal reform, which is always not popular. And, <laughs> but how are you going to pay for all this sustainable development vision if you don't have enough money, right? And so, and then at the same time, we just thought the next year was about putting into place all, all those initial reforms and how to start putting the right pieces in order to, um, to enable system change. And then the next year, the pandemic came and then it was all about, okay, we need to rethink our goals now. <laughs> and then it was more about, um, about being in the present. But at the same time, I, I, I believe I did something that I'm proud of. And then it was to build a long-term vision for our country. Uh, mm -hmm. So at the same time, we were just like solving everyday um, cash transferences or just, uh, just about uh, losing jobs and then reopening and health protocols. And they just like very, very much in, in the smaller issues every day, but the, the key ones, of course, because we were saving lives. But um, and, and, and jobs. Uh, but at the same time, I was working on a long-term vision, a 2050 vision on how to transform our economy. And because we, were, we cannot uh, afford to keep on growing at 3% um, of GDP and having around 20% of poverty, for example, and 13% of, um, of unemployment. So what we needed to do is under that vision on how to scale up this uh, climate resilient uh, vision of development and how to make it work so that we could actually activate economically areas outside our great metropolitan area and how to just enable a new generation of blue jobs and green jobs and orange jobs based on creativity and uh, putting into place our traditions and into value them. So this is also what I did and, and territorially, because just using the territory as a, as a ways in which we can actually help our people just have more opportunities and and transform our, our economy, not that linked to tourism, not that linked to, uh, for example, um, to other particles, or now our first export are just medical devices, but not, not that linked into that, but more sophisticated uh, to have better quality of jobs and also to be more uh, coherent with this vision of climate resilience. So this is something I worked on. And uh, this was also part of my, of my legacy. So I think that I am proud of that. And I had the support from the president and my team and, and then the rest of the ministers. What strikes me from that, just if I can interrupt, what strikes me from that model is actually how much it's, it's an ecosystem approach. It is, you know, sort of diversifying how your economy runs and 
the pieces in it and who contributes. And it's just making it more robust. So you have a system like the, the tissue of society is much more diverse and resilient. And it's not just relying on one thing, one export, one part of the economy, one region. And it just struck me as like, wow, that's such a reflection of nature, actually. When, when nature is like that, it's healthy. When your economy is like that, it's healthy. Yeah. I also, I don't want to interrupt, but I also want to hear about what led you to the IDGs as well, because this is part yes, of vision. Of course. And so uh, we had the, this long-term vision on how to transform our economy and how to, and the right steps, like we define like very, very much uh, like the smaller parts of what it was the right policy in order to enable that system change. To get that vision of a of a vision that was a decentralized, decarbonized, uh, where everybody had the opportunities. But then again, huh, you start to realize that this is this is wonderful. This is just like a, a great airplane, but you actually need people to <laughs> learn how to to fly it. And then uh, in that in that moment, you start reflecting that institutions are not just this uh, there's a thing that exists and that has no soul, like uh, only like sort of an apparatus and then that the private sector is not some abstract idea, but actually that those two and civil society, it's about the people who work on them. Institutions are the people who work on them, are the people who lead them, are the people who uh, just conduct, uh, they're, they're just steer them or do everything inside them, the same as the private sector. So you cannot actually aim for uh, a system change if you don't uh, change the people, and uh, and it was it was very harsh um, at the moment because we uh, because of what happened we we didn't have all the answers and there was a lot of pressure into our, our people. So what we decided is how can we just give back, give back to public uh, servants, give back to uh, very caring uh, uh, private sector people who have been around, and then uh, so civil society. And what we discovered is in order to accelerate transformations of sustainable development, not only the 2030 agenda, but this vision of the long-term economy we want to become and the long-term society in 2050, very much uh, in dialogue with all the adaptation and decarbonization instruments, then we need to start changing ourselves. The, the very basic question of, all, of always, just like, um, just how can we give back and how can we just work on towards that change because it's not automatic, right? And this is where the IDGs came in. And it's about what you have in your heart and your strength and the answers that come from within and how you put all of that un, uh, under a mission or a vision of, um, of being uh, as, um, as, uh, in society and understanding that, um, that your humanity is their humanity and the, the other person's humanity and that we are one you know, one with nature too. The, just finding yourself in others, it, it, it sounds easy, but it's not. Uh, and then, uh, and particularly when you're in office, it's not, it's very yeah. abstract. And we're not, our, our society isn't constructed to enable that. Our uh -huh. society is really constructed to keep us separate. And also there are winners and losers and there are those who are exploited and those who exploit. And your goal is to just become a better exploiter and become more powerful usually. Yeah, our whole system, all of <laughs> our culture and our systems do not lend themselves to helping us to connect. So, Exactly. And then not to collaborate and just to compete, right? That's like the vision that we have. And if you're successful, it's because you have managed to beat them all. And yeah. then you're the only one standing. So this is not the vision. And it's not the vision for sustainable development because it's not the way nature works, right? So in order to build and, 
And it's, you know, and it's not the wisdom of our indigenous people either. Like they have this way of understanding everything in a sphere, that we were all one. And so we wanted, I, I felt that was very, it became, and it felt, I did just felt very natural to me because it was like this uh, indigenous wisdom and then the way to move forward. And then um, I met them and they said, you really, are you signing on this? And I said, yes. <laughs> and then uh, it's sometimes some of my colleagues in the, minister, the cabinet of ministers said, that's very hippie. I mean, that doesn't really, is that really what you want to do? I mean, that's not right. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, yes. Because they only read the first part about mindfulness and it sounded so bizarre. Whoa, whoa. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're an economist, remember? And it was like, yeah, I know. But, but it's just a different way to do and to be, right? Yeah. I think then, this is a good moment to actually explain to people what the inner development goals are, the IDGs that we've been referring to. So just quickly, it's there are five dimensions and underneath those are 23 skills. And I'll put this in the show notes because it's innerdevelopmentgoals.org and they're based in Stockholm and it, it really makes sense. So the five categories, the dimensions are being, which is about relationship to self, thinking, which is about using your brain, cognitive skills and developing that. Three is about relating and caring for others in the world. Four is collaborating, which is social skills, society. And five is acting, which is about driving change. And it's just a really nice framework that again, it just, all of that is the missing piece of the skills that we all need and the practices that we all need to then drive toward the sustainable development goals, which are about eradicating poverty and hunger and ensuring human rights, these big grand, grand goals, but this is the stepping stone to them. And it starts with being very human, which keeps coming up for me in what you're saying about being human and recognizing the public sector is made up of people who go to work. Government is made up of people who go to work and you haven't lost touch with that. So yeah, I guess now tell talk to me how about how you sold the idea of the inner development goals to your colleagues in government. No, so what, basically what we did is I said I'm going to dive in with this because I really believe it and I see it as an accelerator of for the for the big questions of society for the big questions of sustainability. And um, you cannot just say okay, then drop everything. Now we're going to think about the long term. Now we're going to work on this differently. We're going to relate differently. We're going to trust the private sector and the civil society. We're going to co-create, okay? So just uh, go to the meeting. It doesn't really work like that, right? You need to have them uh, just um, have the insight and have the right capabilities and being an open, open your heart and um, open your mind and, and just uh, and open yourself in a way that you can actually feel yourself uh, in the position of feeling connected. And that was, uh, and how to to relate to someone else and then relate not only and also as a public servant, relate to people's expectations, relate to people's needs, to people's suffering, to people's joy, to people's um, need to just, to just to live in a better way. And then this is where the value, the public value comes. This is where that uh, very big name of public, uh, global public goods and services comes. And it's just about uh, listening and about being and about doing the best in order to align the resources to that vision, because in a way, uh, serving as a as a public servant has just the uh, it's almost like being a superhero you know you have to <laughs> put others first <laughs> i love that i love that and also if oh if only all public servants people in government saw themselves as public servants and superheroes how different would governments be i'm just like oh my gosh because i want to ask you some questions about your thoughts on what we should start to expect from those in power because you are so inspiring i mean People listening are probably like, there's no way this woman is in government or was in government. Like how these, these are the people in charge. These are the politicians, because 
you know, you don't really have to think too hard to realize we society doesn't think too highly of politicians generally. And it's always there's always going to be complaints and well deserved in a lot of cases. I'm British and American, so I just can't read the news anymore. But well, I guess then I would love to have been in some of your cabinet meetings when you were talking about the inner development goals early on. Because you're just like, yes, this is my voice. Yes, this is my face. Yes, I'm going to dress in a very feminine fashion. Yes, I'm going to show up as myself, but as a hardcore economist, and I'm going to talk about the inner development goals. (laughs) Was there anybody who really needed to be won over and they came around in the end? I love also, I think it's important that this is, it's based in the economic portfolio. You know, it's not sustainability. It's not sustainable development. It's an accelerator to the economy, which is such a powerful way to put it. So was it a hard sell? Was it an easy sell? How did it go? Uh, no, it was a hard sell. It, it wasn't. It wasn't hard with my president because he was very much. He, in a way, he understands, right? He, he said, "Yeah," because he used to be the minister of uh, of uh, social affairs. So he's he has this uh, he's, he has this heart, right? So he it was easy with him. But it wasn't that easy with with the central bank, for example, or with others. It was like what. And there's, uh, or even with uh, the private sector, because I mean, like uh, in Stockholm or, or in Sweden, it's about uh, the private sector just, uh, it's ready for these conversations, but but not in our society. Perhaps they needed some <laughs> work and some uh, convincing and some buy-in. But in the end, it, it is, it felt, yeah, okay, yeah, so there's people behind it all and people have to have the right set, set of capabilities. And then, and then we have to just uh, do the best in order to collaborate better and all. And it was also about questioning leadership in, deep down. It was also it was also a threat in a way because you know if you do it in the right way, then you're about serving others and about thinking about what's best for all. For all. Then some some people are going to be left behind, but in the sense that their interests are not going to be the ones uh, just dominating the agenda, the public agenda. So. Of course, that is also <laughs> it's not as innocent as it seems, you know, politically. And then, uh, but it was the right thing to do. So um, in the end, it it worked out for the best. And now we are doing. Now it's uh it's it's complex. We had because we had a government change, and in that process, then it's also about how is this going to work uh, with the new authorities that do not uh, see or not do not envisage the SDGs and the IDGs as part of uh, like the a side of the strategic agenda, and then so the hard, so it's even a harder uh, sale. But I believe in other sectors like um, international uh, organizations uh, and also the private sector and, and also middle uh, level like public servants. They they believe in this and they're working towards that. So in a way, it's just um, it's not only governments, but uh, other actors in society that also provide a sense of and a vision. And that, so yeah, that's. Good. That was also something I was wondering is, did you manage to get it embedded enough so that by the time you left office, they have to continue it? It can't just be like, nope, this is not on our political agenda. It's not been part of our platform. We're ditching it. So it's embedded enough that the inter-development goals and Costa Rica piloting it as one of the first five countries to do so will continue? Mm-hmm. Yes. Now we're, uh, we're part of the pilot and then, uh, and then public servants like uh, middle uh, public servants are, are just working on it. And at the same time, I got it linked toward with the SDGs and I got buy-in from, uh, there's like a steering group for SDGs that works with the United Nations. And then we have the private sector, universities, local governments, we have everyone in there. So those uh, people are also just uh, hanging on it and then moving forward with it. 
Because uh, that was very important when you asked me about what is it tough when you know that you have to leave office and then you're going to be unemployed too? And how does your objectives change in that? And like my objective was uh, thinking, how can I just uh, make this continue without me? Like, I mean, Pilar, who cares who? We don't care. But uh, actually sustainable development agenda, IDGs are then moving on, right? And that was uh, the principle. Uh, same with evaluation. Our country did not do any evaluations. Now we are um, a hub for evaluation for Latin America. We get invited to the OECD evaluation meetings. And it's about this, like the little changes that just uh, survive when they get embedded, right? Yeah. And it's also beautiful for people to know because they can look you up, but also like there's you know, the little country that could, I mean, 6 million people. Because I, I spent most of my policy career in Scotland, which is 5 million people. And it's a great size to actually be able to sort of experiment and drive things, but then serve as a model that bigger countries or countries who aren't necessarily as into the sustainability agenda can look to. And you've piloted it for them and then it's easier for them to adopt. So I, I love that that's a good size of country to do things like this because you're still very connected to people in a population that relatively small. So what do you see as some of the biggest collective challenges that we're facing? What do people legitimately need to be uncomfortable about in order to be and act differently and to maybe expect more of their leaders? Mm -hmm. Yes, I believe that we have to start by acknowledging that, uh, that we need to, to change our economic system. It's not okay to be comfortable in an economic system that is just still based on, on fossil fuels and endangering the whole species, and it's not okay to uh, generate wealth when there's a lot of, uh, of, of uh, people just suffering and being in poverty and being mistreated. And it's not okay if women do not have the right opportunity. So that has to make you feel very, very uncomfortable because uh, if not, then your heart is not in the right place and you have to check up on yourself. <laughs> just have one small conversation over there <laughs> with their, your, own, your own heart. And I think that um, it's about that. It's about... Um, you uh, about rethinking the whole way in which we can generate wealth and then how we collaborate with, with each other in order to understand that, it, yes, this is about global public services. So this requires rethinking international cooperation. For instance, it requires rethinking the way you collaborate with others. And um, I'm also very concerned about migration and how uh, this hurts a lot. Like uh, in our country right now, when you're walking, you can actually see people from Venezuela around because they want to get to the States, but like thousands and thousands more than ever. And then in a region like ours, and of course, everywhere in the world, then what are we going to do with these people? How can we actually help them and, uh, and attend them, not from a security perspective, but from a human rights perspective, recognizing and relating to them as, as being yourselves too, like that's you over there. I mean, maybe you don't see it, but that's you, that's human, that's your own humanity there. And they're, they're suffering a lot and they're trying to do, uh, to thrive just to have the minimum basis. And that should make you very uncomfortable knowing that there's people like that. Uh, and then, um, so there are so many things, right? And then what, and also acknowledging that perhaps it seems so out of uh, your league, some of these problems, but then everyone can do something in a smaller scale and just the, knowing what you can actually contribute to that towards that. And also about the bigger questions, uh, you should be thinking how to finance system change. I mean, that for me, 
uh, economy, economy wise, it's just the most important, not how to reproduce and have then some sort of policies just to uh, give uh, better to people who are actually losing and will always be the losers. No, but actually how to finance those, that system change and that climate resilient development vision that is very much an empowering people and letting them thrive about protecting them, about uh, giving them the right set of opportunities and just about rethinking sources of, um, of, of wealth and of being of, with as a, as a society. That's, what, that's my vision. Right? And this is also about changing the way we understand leadership and changing the way we do policy, right? Uh, like in our, if you see the Central American region right now, and if you see our country, then leadership is right now it's about being a bully or of being a, in a certain way, very uh, having this very strong voice, being autocratic, being a, uh, just a very based on the personal figure of the of the own a male president, right? And then um, so this is something we have to rethink when we actually what we need right now it's a, a leadership that is transformational that is collaborating that it's about it's a different uh, sort of leadership and if it cannot come from office and if it cannot come about from the highest stories of uh, of sense of providing sense to the to the whole system then it should come from other places and we cannot uh, we cannot allow ourselves just to replicate that style and to answer in the same way that we actually given policy or we have begun political messages in no we answer in a different way because we we're not right like that like in order to change you have to change uh, the way you actually assimilate and and respond back to that so mm. wow you've had a lot of good juicy points there pilar <laughs> about transformational leadership about how we should expect different about how we need to transform our ideas of what a leader is and does and you know I don't know if it's I don't know if it's a case of actually don't vote for those people because in a lot of places it's not actually necessarily that a lot of people do vote for them but they somehow win elections anyway. But it's about I liked what you said about I mean going back to your your skill set which I love. You clearly are heart led but you have this brilliant analytical mind and economic well economist skill set and you talked about how do you finance system change. So yeah, while well, encouraging people to be uncomfortable about what's going on in the world and these, the human, the humans who are suffering, like you, you mentioned Venezuelans, my partner is Venezuelan, so I know a lot about this the situation there. And people just want to have a, a good life. They want to be able to feed their children. They want to not fear for their safety because there's so much crime, because there's so much poverty. But remember, those people are humans. They're not a threat to, just a threat to security. They're not there to be criminalized. They're human beings. I like that you really always bring it back to humanness. And also, how do we each do something in our own sector, in our own sphere of influence, in our own homes? You know, it's not about, they don't, people don't have to go become politicians like you <laughs> to create change because it's about connection and community and and being someone on the ground who is helping to build a better society. So what then, on the flip side of that, what excites you about the future? Ah, uh, you know, I have, I always know, like, for example, if you ask me, I always have this uh, vision that in five years we're going to be better. And uh, I don't, like, uh, personally, and also, like, in the world, we're going to be better. I don't have this pessimistic view of the future, even if it gets uh, really, really dark and it's uh, just uh, raining really hard. <laughs> I I don't I don't have that vision because I believe you know what because I believe in 
in in others. I believe that as society, we can actually find our way out and um, and how we can transform. And I have really good examples. I mean, the community behind IDGs or what uh, Otto Sharman is doing at the at the U Lab and MIT, for example, or just uh, I have good partners that show me and and every day I see that uh, that there is hope and then there's a different way in which you can actually do things. There is something very simple uh, every day, I think. And I've been thinking about this the last week. Like um, when, when, when someone asks me, who uh, do I admire? Or who do I draw inspiration from? Then you, you always think about all these big names, but you know, it is actually not like that. It's like about the people you relate to when you go to the supermarket, when you go to the fair, or when you go to just uh, buy your groceries or whatever, or just, uh, just be around sitting in a park or, and then uh, coming across people and just, uh, or your own friends or your own family. And the answer to that and why I am optimistic is because I see that a lot of people, even in the darkest situations, even under the roughest circumstances, would actually make decisions based on love and not. And that, ah. and that is like the most important thing. And then every day I get up, I just think, may your <laughs> decisions be based on love and not fear. And this is, this is the most important for me, because in a way, if you actually give up, then of course, it's going to be really dark in five years. But if not, then, then you can actually do something. I believe in the power of agency. And then I believe in collaboration and I believe in the small change that can actually be escalated. And, and so this is why I think I'm optimistic. <laughs> yeah. And also, it sounds like a practice for you. You get up and you think, how can I start this day in love? How can I act in love? But it's about consistency as well. I mean, it's just like going to the gym or, or trying to eat healthier. It's just, just keep showing up and doing that. And you might not notice the impact it has initially, but over time, you'll start to see, oh, oh, when you look back, we talk about hindsight is twenty twenty. You know, you only get perfect vision when you're looking back at it. So getting out of bed every day, starting it with gratefulness, starting it with, you know, how can I base whatever I do on love, not fear? I, I just feel like that is a beautiful thing for people to hear from you and to remember, how can you start every day and live every day in love, not fear? Whatever it is you do in the world, whoever you are, whatever family situation you're in, whatever country you're in, how can you start with love and not fear? Because it would just be so easy to stare endlessly into the abyss of the news, um, you know, the difficult times we've been going through collectively for the past few years. You could just stare into the abyss and either get so angry, you do things out of emotion rather than actually out of maybe what's possibly the best action, or you just get taken down by the darkness of it all. But I'm with you, Pilar. I am totally with you. I, I know a lot about what's going on in the world politically and environmentally, and I, I never feel that heavy anymore because I'm with you. When you decide to see how resilient and how brilliant people are, how resilient and how creative the climate is and adapting and like evolution is happening before our eyes. We never have stopped evolving on this planet. And I am looking forward to seeing what comes out of the hard moment we're having collectively in lots of ways, because that's when the good stuff gets squeezed out. That's when the innovation happens. That's when people are at their best because it's like a little bit like combat. You know, it's like people are half super focused all of a sudden when it's no longer easy 
And you can't just drift along in the status quo without questioning it or without having to do something differently or without having to change a system at a big scale. That's when the good stuff happens. So yeah, I welcome the discomfort of it. And this is why I have this podcast because it's, it's brilliant. Like discomfort is bloody brilliant for what we need to do and who we need to be. It just makes us better if we let it. So yeah. What one final thought would you like to leave listeners with? Because you have left so many good ones. I've been scribbling down like sound bites and quotes to use on social media, but if you could leave listeners with one thing to just take away with them into their day, what would it be? Uh, what would it be? Just, just thinking about uh, reflecting on yourself and, and also what, what makes you, uh, what inspires you, what makes you just be uh, at the moment and also and know that uh that there is like this small powerhouse in you right that then and that is something no one can actually take from you and then that should be open to others and then just share your powerhouse and then open open yourself up to others and to collaborating with others and how can we actually share the wisdom share yourself share the love and then that's that's what i think uh one should think about what is it that uh, makes it for me? What defines me? And I love your the name of your podcast. And also, I have, whenever in my life when I have been really, really uncomfortable, and then I have made a decision, it has to been about the best in life, in love, and politics. <laughs> and then this is why I also acknowledge, yeah, the, how brave you are. And then I, I this is why I, I was into this podcast too, because those are the the best moments like for humans when you actually get to show what your colors are made of and how you can actually become and then one last thing i would like to say is never stop evolving never never stop changing never stop evolving never let uh, anything in your life just stop you because the moment you stop then you are not uh you're dead you're not creating life you're not enabling anything well to happen just you can actually stop take a break but then try to just uh, move on and move on from inside with your own energy, with your own force. And then just make, just make it a lot, everything with love <laughs> in your life and around yourself. Oh, those are beautiful thoughts to end with. And amen from obviously a fellow discomfort appreciator. The best things in my life have come from what I thought were the hardest moments at the time. And that's where the beauty happens. That's where the good stuff comes from. It crushes the things that no longer serve you that you wouldn't have let go of otherwise sometimes, or it just sends you in a new direction. Thank you so much for bringing your light to the world. I've enjoyed this so much and also just leaving with a sense of lightness and optimism. And I hope others can feel that too. If just someone like Pilar has been in government, there are people like Pilar in government around the world seeking to actually serve the society that they're part of, you know, there, there are some people who are showing up to do a really beautiful job and they remember that they're humans and they remember that you're a human and they are doing good work. So take hope from this. I'm not saying all politicians are awesome, but nobody, there's no sector in which everybody's awesome. So I hope that this helps to just bring some light and some, some encouragement to people today. But thank you so much, Pilar, for your time, for, for your you-ness for your voice, for your softness and your strength. I really appreciate your being here. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this episode, 
Follow and like The Discomfort Practice wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave me a five-star and written review and share this with other people. Help me to reach new audiences with this idea that consciously practicing discomfort helps us to individually and collectively discover our superpowers and create a society and a planet where everyone can thrive. Thank you so much to my guests all season. Go back and listen to a few more episodes to hear more of them. They are wonderful humans doing amazing things in the world. Thanks to my team who helped me produce this podcast and for those who inspire me through their writing, their conversation, and their support. So that's all from me for now. Follow me on Instagram at the Betsy Reed if you want to get to know me a bit better, some of my thoughts. And in the meantime, stay uncomfortable.